So I'd like to say just a few words about mindfulness in general. Mindfulness, the most common, still the most common English translation for the Pali term sati, um, has become very uh, popular around the world in all kinds of contexts, also secular contexts. It's almost like, it seems like in the 1970s, I think it was Zen, um, started with Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, or maybe it was something else it started with, but uh, that was Zen and the art of, was it archery? That was probably the first. Flower arrangement, well that's, yeah, it was also still traditional, of course, Japanese, in fact. But then uh, there was uh, an inflation, isn't it, of that it became the Zen of the art and anything, I, I don't know. Um, so these days, it seems to be mindfulness. I, I believe what well, it started with the, uh, probably, probably uh, what at least it became more uh, common and established with maybe John Kabat-Zinn and, and uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction and the introduction of mindfulness practices in the, uh, well, in the hospice and hospital environment, um, healing environment stress management, pain management, um, the recognition basically of this, what was understood to be this particular technique that the Buddha had to offer as part of his teaching, um, also, also without necessarily all the, the other elements that the Buddha offered in his you know, integrated kind of eightfold path, could have um, very useful applications um, for people to learn, uh, particularly um, for dealing with, with physical discomfort and also yeah, uh, stress, which could be caused by physical discomfort, but also um, stress in generally. So I think mainly was first introduced for patients in, in hospices, hospitals, but then also interesting, of course, at the same time for s staff, for nurses and, and doctors, carers, to deal with their uh, situation more mindfully. And uh, benefits of it were very quickly recognized, so it became very popular. Um, started, I think, first in the, in the United States, but now also in the NHS and, and all over the world. And then uh, also, of course, in the um, next thing, um, uh, um, in the realm of psychotherapy or general kind of therapies for the mind, you know, sort of the same way as dealing with discomfort in the body, it was you know, also seen that similarly you can apply, uh, apply it for dealing with discomfort in the mind, starting to understand more, having to be more mindful, you know, creating space around what's actually how our mind operates and, and using that as a um, as a tool also within various forms of, of psychotherapy and, and counseling. And then, you know, it just started to um, grow beyond until the, the latest that I heard that it's now more and more popular also in various armies around the world. I think, again, 
the, the Americans were leading was introducing mindfulness practices for the soldiers so that they become more efficient killers, I imagine. <laughs> um, and so, interesting, uh, partly, as far as I know, um, uh, you know, taught by uh, mindfulness teachers, you know, paying, being paid for their job, and that raised, of course, also the discussion among uh, Buddhist practitioners and, and teachers around, you know, the, the wholesomeness of this whole kind of thing, you know, how far you extend this and what that has, um, has it still to do, if anything, with the Buddhist teaching. So, um, I just wanted to just remind us, give it just a little summary, trying to give a little summary about mindfulness in the particular context of the Buddha's teaching, uh, what the Buddha had to offer. Uh, so, first of all, before I go there, I just, just like to just say a few words about this term, sati, mindfulness, probably familiar to many of you, well, what does it actually mean and, and, and why did it become so popular in all kinds of also secular contexts outside of the framework of the Buddhist teaching. It seems to be, most scholars uh, agree that the uh, original meaning of sati has to do with, with memory, with remembering, That's the original meaning of the, the word, and it's still reflected also many modern Buddhist teachers highlight that aspect and one of the translations for practicing sati or mindfulness then also is keeping things in mind. In fact, uh, just a couple of days ago I, I read some translation of, uh, of some talk by Ajahn Chah which uses that translation, but of course Ajahn Chah did speak in Thai, so this is also a matter of just depending on who's kind of translating, of course, his <laughs> teaching. So that's something that's actually interesting to always be mindful of as well, keeping in mind that what we read and Buddhist teachings, translations from the suttas, or also Asian teachers, they are English translations. So they also, of course, partly reflect the understanding of the, the respective translator. Anyway, keeping things in mind is one common translation of mindfulness practice. So if you practice mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati, and obviously it means keeping the breath in mind. You know, or I know, remembering the breath, staying with the breath. So um, that aspect of, of remembering, remembering what you're doing. Another aspect uh, which seems to become clear if you look at the different contexts where the Buddha talks about mindfulness practices, which has been highlighted is, I guess, could be translated was just with the sense of being present. Presence, presence of mind could be another viable translation for sati or mindfulness. So that means to be really present for what you're doing, being fully with what you're doing. Um, so the even commentarial definition of the absence of mindfulness, the opposite, then would be distractedness. If you're doing something, but you're not actually present for what you're doing, your mind is going to other things. You're already thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, or how nice, you know, let's say you're doing a job and you're already thinking about how nice it'll be if, when, when this is, job is finished and what you can do with this and how it's going to improve your home or something like that. Or you think about totally different things. In other words, you're distracted. 
So you're not really with what you're doing, not fully with what you're doing, you're not fully present. Hmm? Um, a, a common proposal for bringing those two aspects together then has been by some scholars to highlight the fact that the way that the Buddha so we use this term sati and this idea of remembering in this specific context for being present could be then be translated at, as remembering the present, remembering to be present. Again, I think it's quite a viable um, suggestion. Um, what you start to see there already is this mindfulness. I think it's, it's probably not, it's, it's, it's a subtle and maybe in complex, multifaceted quality. So it's not such a simple thing that we could be very, that we could kind of uh, define in very, um, in a very simple kind of way, in kind of just, um, uh, you know, just, 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 just really pinning it down to one quality. If we try to do that, we probably just only just actually catch one aspect of what's, what's implied in mindfulness. For example, uh, with what I have said, it sh should maybe already be clear that one aspect of mindfulness is actually a certain form of concentration. So mindfulness is a, is, has a certain element of concentration to it. Mm. Um, so it's not actually as it sometimes maybe gets presented as, as something that's totally other than concentration. Sometimes they, they, they maybe, sometimes they get discussed as kind of some opposing kind of path, the path of mindfulness, the path of concentration. Again, I mean, that if you do that, that would probably reflect very much a particular understanding of concentration or particular understanding of mindfulness. Actually, they overlap in, in the, from my understanding of the way the Buddha talks about them. So mindfulness as non-distractiveness is a form of concentration, but it's not necessarily, not necessarily or it's certainly not kind of an exclusive concentration which would just focus really sharply or exclusively on some kind of object to the exclusion of everything else. At least that's my understanding. Uh, that would be more like, uh, yeah, I mean, just pure concentration if you just take the term by itself. But mindfulness would be more like, if you said, like remembering the present moment is more like a certain concentration and non-distractiveness with your present experience. So it's not object-specific. It has rather a bit more soft focus, I would suggest. So you are present, you're not distracted, you're present with what you're doing, but not actually so much narrowed down that you're not actually taking in the context anymore. It's actually for mindfulness to probably to oper uh, operate properly, the way the Buddha envisioned it, it will have has a certain um, range to it. That means it's actually essentially to it that you are with what you're doing but you're actually able to connect that to other elements in your experience, things that turn up that are actually relevant to the purpose of what you're doing. Well, that's what I mean with the soft focus. You're actually, you're actually able to take in a whole kind of range of things that, um, that, uh, that, that manifest in your present experience. You're staying with it and you're actually able to actually operate with some discernment within that actual range of focus. So you're actually being aware of what's actually relevant for you, what you're doing, for your purpose, and what's not. So what you actually need to actually take into account and what you can discard. So it makes it quite a, a subtle uh, quality. 
Um, so with the lots of the modern day secular applications, I think two particular qualities of that uh, stand out that make it, of course, very attractive. One, it's almost like it's very obvious, like a no-brainer, is non-distractedness. Of course, if you're really present with what you're doing, you're not distracted with what any job you do, you're more attentive to what you're doing, so you're probably doing a more proper job. No? <laughs> so that's uh, it's pretty clear, like, in any, you know, like if you do some DIY at home, you, you're drilling holes into the wall and you're distracted, well, you might actually drill the holes in the wrong places or, or even into the wrong wall or something, you know, or you go too deep or whatever. So you really want to pay attention to do a proper job. Again, also, it's, it's obvious, I hope, it takes into account the fact that it's not just that you're fully, it's not actually just concentration. It's not just that you're really concentrating on the hole that you're drilling. You know, you are aware of the context of what you're doing. You know. um, and uh, the, an, an example for that, well, the DIY would be an example, one that I actually like to also highlight maybe the difference or what, what actually uh, makes mindfulness, turns mindfulness into right mindfulness, according to the Buddha, Remember when you talk of mindfulness as a, as a part of the Eightfold Path, it's called Samasati, which means right mindfulness. Or well, there's one translation, certainly right mindfulness. And that's one of the first things that maybe we become aware of if you talk, think about mindfulness in the, in the context of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha talks about right mindfulness. It means he's also considering the uh, fact or the possibility that there's wrong mindfulness. Right? <laughs> so what makes actually the difference? Mm. So one example that I always like to use to me or, or ponder about is, is, the, uh, is the, the bank robber, the gentleman bank robber. Uh, so not the kind of guy who goes in with a gun into the <laughs> bank and uh, takes hostages or something, but the one that, that, I don't know, climbs in through the chimney at night and has got all his tools and is you know, cracking the safe. Um, as we know from uh, from usually American kind of heist movies. But <laughs> um, so in order for, the, for our gentleman uh, bank robber to be successful, he better have some mindfulness, right? So he better be present with uh, what he's doing, pay attention, because if he doesn't pay proper attention, then, uh, well, he might actually leave, um, how do you call it, like he leaves behind evidence or something that, that, you know, the police can use to trace him down or whatever. Uh, or he doesn't, or, you know, see if he's totally concentrated on his job, you know, if he's just fully concentrated, but he doesn't pay attention to the time, he might be still in there, you know, trying to crack the safe when actually in the morning people start to open up the bank and <laughs> say, oh, good morning, sir. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of things. So you, you have to be focusing on what you're doing, but you're also going to have to pay attention to uh, context of what you're doing and relate that to your plan, to your purpose in order to be a successful bank robber. Hmm. But uh, probably the Buddha, we would guess, um, wouldn't call that right mindfulness, even though it is a form of mindfulness. It's a mindfulness appropriate uh, for um, the bank robber to be successful. 
but it's not what the Buddha would call right mindfulness. So what, what does make the difference? Um, according to the Buddha, if we cultivate the eightfold path, any of those eight factors are always cultivated with, need, always need to be cultivated with, uh, with, together with three factors of the path that always have to be present when, if we are working on any, cultivating any of those factors of the, of the path. So w which are those three factors? They are, of course, right mindfulness, the one that we're talking about. But so right mindfulness, and in order to be right mindfulness, always has to operate together with right view and right effort. So that's a good one to remember. It's not that difficult, just three things. And all right, for summer, sati, for right mindfulness, right mindfulness always works together with right view and right effort. And that is very interesting. And it's also, if you think about actually quite, it's actually, if you, if you like, common sense. Because we think about, well, what does it mean? What is right view, according to the Buddha? Um, there are a few standard definitions. The most uh, simple one is to be able to distinguish between what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, kusala and akusala, dhamma, wholesome and unwholesome. And that's interesting enough, is actually the most basic or simple category that the Buddha offered or suggested to people to apply in order to develop actually the path. So in other words, we look at our experience and try to understand from our present understanding, which is maybe not perfect, of course, uh, for whatever comes up in our mind, thoughts, intentions, emotions, or external suggestions of what our friends invite us to do, or you know, a situation that we're in where we have to make a decision, is this actually wholesome, or is it unwholesome? And wholesome, unwholesome, in the Buddhist context, roughly kind of basically means what leads to, wholesome would be what leads to increased well-being, harmless kind of well-being, that's what the definition of well-being. Um, or and uh, unwholesome, what leads to increased suffering for ourselves and others. So that's a very basic category. Slightly more refined and perhaps even more common in the suttas, and the standard is, of course, is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Some understanding, certainly initial understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths, if you like, is a little bit more an analytical refinement of the understanding of what leads to suffering and what leads to well-being. No? Because it's like First noble truth about understanding that there is suffering or stress or unsatisfactoriness, however you want to translate this term dukkha that the Buddha used. And then the second one, then of course there's a cause, so it implies some understanding about what are actually the underlying cause, causes. So if the first one is about dukkha, in our experience, what is actually dukkha, then also the understanding what actually leads to it, what are actually the, the, the underlying causes. No? According to the Buddha, of course, it's an uninformed relationship to our passions, our preferences about our experience of what we like and what we dislike. So attachment, attachment to desire, craving, you know, is what, what uh, either as positive craving for wanting to have something or as aversion um, being the source of it. And then third one, of course, the possibility that there, there can be an, an end to dukkha, to stress. This is not just a given that we, we can't do anything about it. And then the fourth one is precisely the understanding of this past. No? If you like, there's a, there's a feedback loop in there, isn't it? So um, understanding, uh, right understanding or right view um, includes 
uh, an understanding of the Eightfold Path, which in includes right view. So, <laughs> you know, it kind of uh, um, is a bit of a, a, a snake there biting its own tail. Um, so the, the, the thing is that what, what that does then is it, in the, in, it gives our practice of right mindfulness, of being present, being fully present with what we're doing, our experience, the context of our understanding. No? The understanding, the, pre the understanding with which we come actually into the present situation. No? So that informs actually, if that's the framework for in, in which we, we put our practice of right mindfulness, in which we are present, that informs then what we're actually looking at, what are actually the things in our present experience that are actually relevant, you know, that we actually pick up from, that we pay attention to. So that are relevant into which context, not in the context about how we actually successfully rob a bank or to take something more morally neutral about how to improve uh, the way we play a musical instrument or, or, or play uh, a game of football or something, or performance, just performance enhancement, but what's relevant in terms of my understanding about how am I actually responsible for creating suffering in my experience as it's actually happening right now. You know, how does the suffering come in there and how am I actually responsible for it and therefore how can I actually reduce the suffering in my experience? So it gives what the way that I pay actually attention to my experience in particular context is in the framework of understanding of what do I actually need to, what, what, what does actually inform myself in terms of what is my, uh, my purpose here. No? So that is, what what, that is what starts to define mindfulness as right mindfulness, is that, perf is that purpose, the purpose of trying to understand suffering and the end of suffering, wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. No? And, and then, of course, that understanding will translate into the effort that we make with our, with our present experiences, therefore right effort. Sometimes, from practice, of course, we know that maybe just paying attention is enough. We don't need to do anything more. Sometimes actually really seeing what's going on is enough to actually go, you know, to, to basically, you know, put our gear into neutral as it were, to not engage with a particular kind of attention, maybe, if you notice that is un. un wholesome. No, but it might already be, if you like, a subtle form of action, just an action of restraint of the decision to make the decision to not follow a particular kind of impulse or intention. And sometimes maybe it needs, you know, a situation, whether it's an internal situation, mental scenario, emotional scenario, or just the relationship scenario where we ask to actually do something, it needs some more kind of effort, an external effort. But so the right effort is very simply defined by the Buddha is just making the right effort that's needed to actually um, allow wholesome states of mind to arise or generate wholesome states of mind and to maintain them. And on the opposite, to actually whatever is needed to bring unwholesome states of mind to cease and then to try and make sure that they don't arise again. So it's very simple in terms of a technical definition. It's quite difficult and complex and subtle sometimes in terms of you know what actually to do, you know, how do we do that? You know, we actually realize it's not, not very simple. But that's, that, so that gives mindfulness a very nice framework, where it, how it actually works in terms of the Buddhist teaching. And notice how that's the way how also um, the past, the present, and the future actually come together and are in some way always present in the way that we are present. Um, we might sometimes, that because that's, 
might misunderstand or can be a kind of an, perhaps a slight delusion if we think like mindfulness is just about being present. So you're just present, being fully present, so that's good enough. So forget about the past, forget about the future, just be fully present is what you're doing. Uh, probably if you look a bit more closely, that's you know, just this kind of bare presence is not really quite possible anyway. Or, well, it depends again on how you define it. You know, how bare can actually presence or, or consciousness actually be? You know? Of course, that is another quality which has made uh, mindfulness, this, is this quality of presence, quite popular and useful in secular context. And it's sometimes then translated as, oh, it's called bare attention, isn't it? That's a word that's become quite popular, bare attention. But we have to be careful with usually with, con with, with concepts, but also with this one, just asking ourselves, well, how bare can bare attention actually be? It's probably quite a bit of, of what it basically recognizes is that usually, of course, we don't pay bare attention. We've, we pay attention to something, but we have all kinds of interests and, and agendas going on. And in particular also, I guess what our experience is, we, we notice something, and then immediately we proliferate about the experience. You know, we notice some pain, and already starts by we putting label onto it. Already pain is a label, of course, that we, that we put, that, that's something that we're doing. We're adding that to the actually sense perception that we call pain. You know, we just recognize it. It's something that we carry from the past. We recognize it as some experience that from the past we have learned to call pain. And usually there's, of course, a whole kind of judgment coming with that and possible kind of a habitual program about how we are used to relate or respond to pain. So then there might be a reaction. And not only do we call it pain, we, we tend to quickly identify it as my pain. And that turns into my knee hurts or something. And that's, whereas once that happened, which happens very quickly, often a whole kind of personality trait, you know, habitual kind of reaction, scenarios kind of comes at the end of it, it's like, like it's a tail end of it, isn't it? And we, whatever it is, you know, we, we, we start to worry about it, kind of thinking about, you know, well, what might it mean? Is it going to go away? Is it going to get worse? Do I have to see the doctor? And so forth. And of course, depending on how our personality works, some of these scenarios can be more helpful than others. And we can, we tend to, of course, make a lot of our experience much worse and much complicated by the way how we immediately proliferate around it. So that's one of the ways how mindfulness is bare attention has been uh, recognized as very useful in pain and stress management. You know, basically just being able to just stay for a bit longer just with your sense experience before you actually complicate things by first labeling it and then proliferating about it. You know? But at any rate, to try to catch yourself as early as possible if this is what's happening, to notice there's actually a mental program that is kind of spinning out here, which which might not be necessary, over which we might have a choice. And the more we can actually just stay aware of our experience, and in the most simple way possible, the more, of course, we start to create a space in which we actually do have the possibility to exercise choice, to say, hang on, maybe actually I don't need to go that way. Maybe I can try something else. No. But then sometimes this gets, there's, of course, a lot of potential. This is just paying bare attention in the sense of making our attention more bare, stripping down a lot of these extras that we add onto it. And that is, of, is also one of the um, qualities that makes it a powerful spiritual tool because it, it allows us to just stay more directly with our experience and, 
and analyze perception in a non-conceptual way, uh, look at it a bit more closely and starting to actually look a bit more closely how it actually works, how we actually keep creating our reality all the time through perception and then the consequent proliferation around our perceptions. Mm -hmm. But notice that, so I don't know, uh, one could debate and one can experiment, of course, partly with meditation about how much can you actually, how bare can you actually strip attention down? You know? But it's useful, I said, to remember certainly that's, that you said, uh, you say caveat? A caveat around this is that, of course, in our ordinary experience, usually when we pay attention to the present moment, we always carry all our past with us. And, we, and there's always an inclination towards the future. This is, is usually, even when you meditate, the way you actually pay attention in the present moment and what you actually pay attention to in the present moment, because at any moment, like if I talk to you right now and look at you, I mean, my present experience is very complex, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on. Some of it I'm aware of, some of it I'm not. Some of it I pay more attention to than others. You know, already kind of all the five different physical senses, what's actually happening there. And then also what's happening in the mind and all the layers about what's actually happening in the mind, the subtlety of you know, intentions that I have, you know, self-view, self-images, kind of underlying concerns, latent tendencies, you know, about how I, how I want to come across, you know, how I think that I'm coming across, what I think that I, that you think, that I think, that you think about me, and all these kind of mind games that we are playing. It's, oh, it's all lots of stuff happening, isn't it? How much of that am I actually picking up in the present moment? No? That has a lot to do with actually how effective our mindfulness is. And part of that is actually determined by my past understanding. No? What is actually my, the framework of the past, of what I understand about who I am, what I want to do, what you are, what reality is, what to actually pay attention to. What is my, actually my attention around all this? No? That has all to do with my understanding of this. And so, see, the bank, what the bank robber brings into the present moment, you know, from his pre-understanding, that's the past, what he learned about the past, his self-definition, his justifications about what he's doing and why he's doing, you know, which he brings into his job, is of course very different from what the Buddha proposed as right view. So probably what makes a bank robber a bank robber and apply mindfulness in his job as a bank robber, the Buddha would um, qualify as some form of wrong view. So you can't have right mindfulness with wrong view. No? But so the important thing is that to realize that, we all, that this is always operating whether in a present moment, and of course a bank robber has more aspects to his personality or his self-view identification of just being a bank robber. He might also be a husband and a father and, uh, and who knows, maybe as a daytime job he's a bus driver and he might be a passionate cello player and all kinds of things. <laughs> but most of those might not be relevant when he's actually robbing the bank. No, some of them might be. Father, you might be thinking about, well, you know, I have to feed my children and so forth. Or they need a better education. And, you know. So there's a complex combination of things, of his view, that, that actually play a role in about how he's actually paying attention in the present moment and what he's paying attention to. That's his view. And there's certainly there might be a mixture, but there's quite a bit of wrong view probably mixed in there. You know? um, and, so, and then there's the future. 
you know, for all of us. So as we pay attention to the present moment, we usually, by bringing in the past, our understanding, our pre-understanding that we carry with us into the present moment, it translates usually, of course, into an intention about what we actually intending to do, like what we want, what we want to achieve, where we want to go in the future. Again, that determines, of course, again, what we pay attention to and what kind of intention we form out of that. No? So that's the future, in that sense, is also present in the present moment. So in a way, very nicely, right view, right mindfulness, and right effort represent those three aspects of our experience of time. The right view is the past. You know, that's what we've learned in the past. That's what's already there. Right mindfulness is our attention in the present moment. Right effort is, of course, what's directed into the future. What are we going to do about what we encounter in the present moment? So I hope that's it's more or less clear and, and, and abstract. If you go back to the bank robber, just as an illustration, of course, so there's a bank robber. He's got his pre-understanding of what he's doing and why, his justification and so forth, his self-view and, and so forth. And he pays attention in the context of his plan and all his, his views or whatever about what's important and what he needs to do, how to use his tools. And then suddenly he hears a sound. Somebody's, he, there's a key in the door and you know, somebody's coming. No, so the, that gentleman bank robber <laughs> pays attention, and if he has mindfulness and not just concentration, if he's too concentrated, he might actually not pay attention. He doesn't hear that something somebody's actually coming in, and that's it. You know, um, there he's he's losing it. But say he pays attention, he's got mindfulness, he hears a sound, and he rightly relates that sound to what he's doing. He realizes this is relevant. Not, don't ignore this. <laughs> this is important. So, and then, because of his view, it's going to translate into an effort, into intention of how is he going to respond to this. So, if he is a, if he is a, a bank robber who is prone to violence, who accepts violence, so he's not that much of a gentleman, then that, that will inform the kind of intention that he is going to form and the action that he's going to take. Let's say he's going to get himself ready to attack the intruder. No, so he's going to hide behind the door or something. If the, the, the night guard or whatever comes in, he's going to attack him to put him out of action so that he can continue with his job, let's say. You know? If the past of the bank robber, the understanding that he brings into the present moment is slightly different, let's say he's a real gentleman bank robber, so he's absolutely committed to nonviolence, that's going to make a difference, isn't it? He's got the same, apparently, no, he's doing the same job. He's doing exactly the same job. He's got exactly the same tools. He's paying attention. Apparently, he's just paying attention in the present moment of what he's doing. He's hearing the same sound, but his reaction is going to be different. Why? Because he has a different understanding. Part of his understanding is he's not going to commit any violence. So just hiding in order to attack this uh, night guard is not an option. So he's going to think about how he's going to escape. That's going to be immediately his, 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 all his senses are going to go, well, what's my plan B? How do I get out of here without being caught and without you know, being, being caught in the aftermath? So this just as an illustration how maybe relatively subtle kind of differences. We're still talking about a bank robber doing apparently the same thing. But there's a different setup, a different view, a different understanding of himself makes, makes it the total difference.
not yeah, quite a significant difference in terms of what, how you pay attention in the present moment and in what kind of effort that um, uh, results from that, you know, comes out of it. And of course, the second, the gentleman bank robber, he's still, of course, not doing a wholesome thing, but he's creating much less heavy karma, you know, obviously by just escaping than, you know, by actually attacking another uh, human being. So, so you can see from there, you know, we, we can actually look at that in terms of the usage of mindfulness in various secular contexts, you know, in terms of from the, from the spiritual point of view or from the Buddhist point of view, teaching of the Buddha, we can see, of course, how it's the context of it, uh, what is it actually aiming towards, what are you trying to achieve, is this actually really defining or whether this is actually wholesome or not, you know? In any case, it'll probably unlikely to improve your performance or what are you doing. But if what you're intending to do is not a wholesome activity, then that's actually bad news. <laughs> you know, becoming better at doing something that's unwholesome is actually just getting you into more trouble in the long run. So anyway, in the, in the Buddhist context, then we just can remember the important thing here is that we practice mindfulness in order to understand right view, understand about suffering, you know, what is suffering, how does it come into our life, what is our responsible, responsibility in it, and by understanding that, to understand how we can actually lessen or finally actually overcome suffering completely, and then to make the appropriate effort. And the effort is, of course, defined just in the way that I said, so it's technically defined, it's not about you know, blood, sweat, and tears, or so, can be quite subtle. Sometimes just the effort to pay attention can be enough. But of course, as we know, sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes we have to do uh, more than that. Basically, what, what, whatever helps to keep us on a path towards uh, an increasing kind of purification of our intention. So that's, you know, one of the Buddhist paths is called a, a path of purification. So, and that's where, in the Buddhist path, mindfulness has this very clear role in, in, inside the context of purifying our mind to actually pay attention about what is actually relevant for that aim and how we're actually doing and where do we need to actually adjust our, our effort. <laughs>